Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Is that not one of the most bizarre things you've ever heard? Let me just read it one more time in case you missed it. By faith, Rahab the harlot. Well, perhaps that word means something else. No, it does not. And what more shall I say? I don't know if you said that. I'm not sure what else you can say. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. That's our text for this morning. Those two verses, by any accounting of someone who's looking for a pure and clean description of people of faith, those two verses do not belong in Hebrews 11, and yet they're there. And so we got to deal with them. And we got to face these folks who are listed in the great hall of faith, and yet <laughs> their stories sometimes come across as anything but faithful. And we'll consider that and think it through this morning. We're going to go to a couple places in Scripture to do so. Before we get there, I had written down in my notes, and I don't have to remind you of this, that we live in a messed up world. And it has been a messed up week. In our culture, in our country, from the shootings in Parkland, Florida, 17 people killed and another school shooting on Wednesday to an email I got from Jim Crouch just this last week, just a couple of days ago. And I would ask for you to pray. There is a brand new club at uh, Oak Harbor High School that is a pro-life club. It's got four members, and they were very excited to get started and to meet and they put posters up around the school, nothing saying anything about, you know, even anything that might be upsetting or political to people of an opposite opinion, just posters of where they were going to meet and what the club was. And every one of the posters were torn down, many of them by faculty and staff. And Jim is going to have to meet with this next week some very angry parents who want to know how in the world we could allow such a club to meet on our campus. Now put this together. People then wonder why the shootings happened in Parkland, Florida. You might say, well, what does that have to do with Oak Harbor High School? It has to do with the culture of death. It has to do with a culture that the much bigger picture no longer considers the most fundamental of human life, you know, the most innocent of human life, uh, valuable. Human life has been devalued and trashed such that why not pull out a gun? If you're at the end of yourself, perhaps you have some insanity, or perhaps you just, you're tired of the world and all that you see going on, so you just want to go out and there's, there's nothing afterwards, right? I mean, if you don't believe that there's anything after life and, and life isn't worth anything anyway, that's why we're seeing all of the shootings that we've been seeing in the last decade, ever since Columbine. I was going to take you through a litany of things. I didn't want to do it because it was so depressing, but a litany of, of violence in schools in the history of our country. 
And what's interesting is you see little things happen, kind of Wild West kind of violence, you know, an estranged husband coming into a school and and shooting the, the, the teacher, maybe back in the 1800s. That kind of thing did happen. It was incredibly rare. But you see, uh, uh, statistically, if you drew the line, get to about 1962 and 63 when both prayer and the Bible were removed from public school and you see it go like this. The violence. What people don't understand is it's not just about having a Bible on the school desk. You know, it's not simply about do you have a right to pray? There's that old statement, as long as there are tests in public school, there will be prayer. Okay, we get that. You can pray anywhere, anytime. We're told not to pray on the Temple Mount when we go to Israel. We pray. Can't stop us. But the principle is life is being degraded. Value is being removed. Worth. What, what is our worth if it's only this, this flesh? If it's only 60, 70, 80, 90 years walking in human flesh? If, if that's my entire value, what is that really worth? And especially when you think about going through life and you begin to have those failures that we all have, those big moments where you're not the person you thought you were, or you didn't accomplish, maybe you accomplished great things, but within that you see the things that you had to do to get there, and you realize in and of yourself, if that's where the worth and the value is, we're in trouble. This book values humanity, values life, to the point that God paid the highest price possible, the highest premium so that all human life could be saved if we would accept that and receive that and believe in that. With all that's going on, we live in a messed up world. Now, I joked last night or last week, I really was tongue-in-cheek when I made the comment about having a low opinion of humanity. Truth is, I love people or I wouldn't do what I do. I love being around people. I love the the energy and the excitement and and just life happening Even the good and the bad, just the dynamic of us rubbing shoulders together and being together and living out life together and fellowship, I love that. And I appreciate it so much, but I also recognize that we have a sin nature. The Bible's clear about that. So this battle for value takes place in every one of our hearts. We know, or we realize perhaps that we're valued by God, but we've got a sin nature that battles against that. It's Romans chapter 7. It's all that Paul said about wretched man that I am. I want to do good, but I find myself doing the opposite of what I want to do. And I find in my heart, I love the law of God, but but the law of the flesh and the law of the sin nature fights against that. Jeremiah said, and you've heard it so many times, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then God answers Himself, I, the Lord, search out the heart. He alone understands what we need, especially when it comes to any sense of worth or value. Here's where I'm going. The only hope we have is faith. It's the only hope we have. Not religion. Not a creed or a dogma or a tradition or a system. Faith. As I prayed earlier, simply trust in a holy God, in in the one who is himself trustworthy. 
We trust Him. We believe in Him. And then my value and my worth, it just starts to increase dramatically. When I'm in relationship with Him, when I am looking to Him, when I am trusting in Him, Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, which means I can always trust Him, and He is always consistent, it is faith in Him that changes everything about me. Trusting Him affects my life, my behavior, my character. Literally, it alters who I am at the core of my being. No other relationship does that, by the way. Now, my relationship with my wife, Cheryl, has made me a better man. I realized that when she moved out to Abilene, Texas to join me our second year, our sophomore year of college, suddenly my grades got better because she was a student, I was not. So yeah, someone can encourage you and maybe bring out more of of what is good in you, but it's only Jesus. It's only a relationship with Jesus that begins to alter you at the core of your being. Affects you and impacts you spiritually. Such that things like the fruit of the Spirit begin to appear in your life. And you look back perhaps over ten years and say, wow, I'm more patient than I used to be. I actually love a little better than I used to. And then you start to think about what I was talking about, self-worth. I'm more loving today than I was two years ago. Well, that, that, that heightens my sense of value. But not pridefully because I know where it comes from. It comes from Him. My value is all wrapped up in Jesus. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus came into the middle of our mess? Right into the midst of it. And and to realize that even even His messianic lineage is messy. It is truly messianic. I mean, that's, that's a great word for Him. Messiah who came into our mess. Just read through Matthew chapter 1 sometime. We won't do it this morning. Look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ and look at the number of people who were anything but reputable. Messed up people. I mean, I think about men like Judah, the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe, right? The kingly tribe in Israel. Judah is in the line of Messiah. Messiah comes through Judah. You know what Judah did? Judah, he went to a prostitute, got her pregnant, only to find out that she was his daughter-in-law. This is in the line of the Messiah. His daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar is also listed in Matthew chapter 1. Women were rarely listed in a genealogy, and yet you look at the genealogy of Jesus, and there are four women listed. Tamar, who prostituted herself with her father-in-law to get back at him. There's Bathsheba. Well, she's a peach. (laughs) The adulterous affair with David. You know the story there. Along with them. Who's the one? I know about Rahab. We're going to get to her. I'm trying to remember what the other one is. Um, No. Ruth. 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 Who comes across with good character in the scripture, but she's a Moabite, so she's an outsider loser. She's not part of the group. And she's brought into it. What? She's Oh, an immigrant. Well, there you go. And God said, welcome her. So I don't know what that means politically for us. 
Let's not rabbit trail, okay? And then we and then we come to Rahav. And they're all there in the messianic lineage. Wow. Before we leave the great hall of faith this morning, we went through it a little bit last week. We, we covered it Wednesday night, but I want you to see literally just two portraits here. Two of them, a man and a woman, two people of surprising, you could even say shocking faith. You would not expect them to be listed. And as you read their stories and process, even within the story, you wonder why were they chosen to be in this hallway? I think partially, I'll kind of, you know, get ahead of myself. I think partially they're listed so that we could recognize that we have a place in that same hall of faith. Our value, our worth. So you've got this woman, Rahav, whose portrait hangs in the same hall as only one other woman. Woman, There's only two women listed in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. Just two. Sarah and Rahav. Sarah the mother of the Israelites, Rahab, a daughter of Canaanites, Sarah, wife to the father of the faithful, and herself a picture of beautiful faith, a godly woman, as Peter refers to her, and Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. Verse 31 again says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So two stories this morning. Story number one, we could just call a harlot's faith, which is a strange title for any kind of a story. A harlot's faith. Rahab was abroad. That's what her name means, broad. Just so you know, I'm not trying to be offensive. Rahab means broad or, or, or wide, as in like a wide open space. Josephus in the Babylonian and the Babylonian Talmud and the later rabbis look at Rahab and they try to downplay her embarrassing profession. They try to say, wait, uh, we can't really... I mean, the Bible keeps bringing up. Thanks a lot, Lord, that you keep using the word harlot every time we see Rahab's name. we got to downplay this a little bit. And what they do is they say, perhaps she wasn't a harlot. Perhaps she was more of an innkeeper. Oh, she was an innkeeper. <laughs> But they do that because they say the word harlot, which is zonah in the Hebrew. Zonah, which is literally translated to prostitute, they say, well, yeah, but it comes from the root word zun, and zun literally means to feed or to be well fed. So perhaps then she was just an innkeeper and not a harlot. Well, let's be really clear. The Greek word that is used here in chapter 11, verse 31, is literally a prostitute. It's unequivocal. The word is porne, where we get pornography. And it literally defines in the feminine sense, and it's in the feminine here, a woman who sells herself for sex. That's what the word means. That's who she was. That is what this woman did for a living. But you know what often embarrasses us about ourselves or or other people can become wonderfully eclipsed by faith, by trust in Jesus Christ. You see, the defining characteristic for Rahab is not fornication, it's faith. Let's take a look at her story. Keep your finger in Hebrews 11 and go all the way back to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Book number 6 in the library. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. I'll go ahead and start and you can catch up if you're still looking for it. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, which didn't mean he didn't have parents, nor did it mean his mom was cloistered. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, which I think says more about the two spies than it is about the harlot. Why are they in her house? We need a place to stay. Look for the red light. So they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. She lies. So she's a liar and a hooker. Verse 6. But she brought them up to the roof and had hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Make a little middle note of that. Stalks of flax. What's going on there? Verse 7, so the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Did you hear that? Referring to the Lord as Lord. That this Rahab, this this harlot of Jericho, this Canaanite woman, believed knew that God was God, declares it, states it openly and honestly. It's amazing. Now therefore, she says, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to him, our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now pause for a moment. What in the world was a harlot doing with flax on her roof? Why is this mentioned in the story? What's going on here? You need to understand something about flax. It was a very useful textile, especially in that day. When it was dried, the fine fibers were used for wicks and oil lamps. So incredibly valuable. It was woven for ropes, cords, baskets, and especially it was used for a certain kind of fabric material, fine linen. 
You might say fine linen, bright and clean. Revelation 19 verse 8 says it was given to her, speaking of the church, speaking of the bride of Christ, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Well, what does the righteous acts of the saints have to do with the fine linen, have to do with the flax, have to do with Rahav? Where are we going with this? Listen, I believe this is exactly where Rahav was headed. Where? Righteousness. And in my opinion, this is just a pastor's opinion, but she was already on that road. She was already looking to change her profession. She was already attempting to be or to become a righteous woman rather than that which she was currently. Why do you say that? Proverbs 31 verse 10 tells us an excellent or a virtuous wife who can find. For her worth is far above jewels. Proverbs 31.13 going down this whole list also says she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. There is only one reason for a prostitute to have flax on the roof of her house that is laid out to dry. And that is if she was trying to start another profession. That she wanted to work in the flax. That she wanted to get into the textile. That she wanted to provide for herself in a way that was different than that way that she was providing for herself currently. Perhaps having heard about Yahweh. About this God and these people who were coming into the land and how God was going before them. Perhaps faith entered her heart. And she was in the process of leaving the lifestyle. Because as I told you before, faith changes us. Trust in God changes our behavior, changes our modus operandi, makes us more desirous of goodness and righteousness. And I think because the flax was already there, that her heart was already heading that direction, which is why she welcomed the spies. It's why she knew that they were men of the Lord God. Because the trust had already begun in the heart of Rahav. Listen, if faith doesn't change our behavior, it's not faith. We're about to get into that in the book of James. If faith doesn't alter what we do, then we really don't trust Jesus. If we trust Him, it changes us. Ask James. Chapter 2, verse 23 of his little book, he says, The Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Reckoned? Credited. He trusted God, so God said, Because you trust me, I make you righteous. That's how it works. And so it says he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James is getting at that point. That if you trust, then you are going to behave. That if you have faith, it will change your walk, your life, your actions, your behavior. And if it doesn't, it isn't faith. It's a game. And then what's interesting is talking about Abraham, father of faith. Dealing with his faithfulness, called a friend of God. It says, in the same way, James 2.25, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And there she is again. She's mentioned three times in the New Testament. By James, by the Hebrew pastor, and in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tell me, what is the worth of Rahab? This is a valuable, virtuous woman. Well, back to the story. 
Verse 15, he says, Then she let them down, that is the two spies, by a rope through her window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. You could say living on the edge. Verse 16, And she said to them, Go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return, and then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear, unless we come into the land and you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and you gather to yourself in all into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. In other words, this is our commitment to you. Hang out this scarlet thread. We'll see it. We'll know not to touch your house. And you make sure anyone that you value will be in that house with you. The house with the scarlet thread. What a beautiful picture. They say in verse 20, if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Rahab, who at one time could have worn the scarlet letter, is now tying, tying the scarlet cord to the window of her home. And it is a cord that you can study this out and think it through, but it is a cord that weaves its way throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. A scarlet thread, a scarlet cord. We see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, with the firstlings of Abel's flock that he gave by faith. The scarlet blood that was offered by Abel. We see the sacrifice ram instead of Isaac in Genesis 22. We see the Passover blood sprinkled and spread on the doorpost. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. We see the many blood sacrifices of Israel scattered throughout the book of Leviticus and described in detail all of this blood, all of this scarlet red. Why? Because Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And all of this scarlet is woven throughout the Hebrew Scriptures to indicate the blood of of Jesus on the cross. So even Rahab the harlot is, you might say, covered by the blood. With the scarlet that's hanging out of the window of her home. Skip over to Joshua chapter 6 for the end of the story. Joshua 6 and verse 16. Which says, at the seventh time, now they've been marching around the city, around Jericho. Okay, they've been just marching, marching, marching. And the seventh time, verse 16, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Skip down to verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had. And they also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. But look at verse 25. However, Rahab the harlot 
and her father's household and all she had Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Hey, she is not only in the midst of Israel, she is in the midst of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahav. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David the king. Rahav was David's great-great-granny. I kind of wish that Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 said, By faith, Rahab, the great-great-granny, did not perish. You know? (laughs) Rahab the harlot. The faith of the harlot led her into the family of God. And faith does that as well. It draws us to other people who have also trusted Jesus. It leads us into the family, into the midst of the Messiah. And it draws us to be near to Jesus in spite of our past, be our past filled with fornications or fiascos or failures. It makes no difference. We are drawn by the blood of Christ into the midst of Christ. Now please understand, that doesn't mean that God's just dismissing or ignoring sin. It doesn't mean that sin's okay. Well, you know, you're a big bad sinner, so just believe in Jesus and keep on living the lifestyle and you'll be fine. Uh Uh-uh. I remember Jesus saying very clearly to the woman caught in adultery, go your way and sin no more. How can he say that? Because trust in Jesus changes us and alters our behavior. I'm not pretending that any of us will be instantly perfect. Or honestly, ever perfect until Jesus comes and we are changed and we are glorified. Then yes, we will be perfect. So I know there's a lifetime where there can still be failures and missteps and sins and fiascos. So I'm not giving license to that at all. But the reality is trust in Jesus changes everything. God is not looking for clean, impressive people. He's looking for faith in people whom He can make clean. And He desires to do that. Now you can say, well, okay, so Rahav, the harlot, was heading in more of a a, a direction of flax. (laughs) Righteousness. And was changed and all that, but there's still a problem in the story, and that's the fact that Rahav lied to protect the spies. So how do you reconcile that with a perfect God? She was not only a harlot, but she was a liar, and she lied straight up to try and protect these guys. How is that okay? It's not okay. But what's marvelous to me is that the Hebrew Scriptures have a tendency to show people as they are, whereas the New Testament Scriptures show people as they are by faith. And we see a difference. But if we see a difference, why is she still called Rahab the harlot in the New Testament? Because faith is the issue. It's not just that she's Rahab the harlot, it's by faith Rahab the harlot. Faith is an issue. Faith is the filament through which the power of God flows into our lives and begins to work that wonderful change. Faith is the issue. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, faith. 
which again is not religious exercise. It is trusting in who Jesus is. It is coming to Jesus and believing that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. It is simply trust. Man, if we can get that, if we can get faith, if we can put faith in Jesus, then grace begins to flow. And righteous, holy changes will take place. As took place with Rahab. Oh, she may be listed as Rahab the harlot here in Hebrews 11. Tying us back to that ancient story in Joshua 2. But I guarantee you when we see her in heaven, she will not be called Rahab the harlot. I believe it will be more like Rahab the righteous. Because she trusted in God. But there's more messiness here. What more shall I say, verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 11? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Story number two. Story number two, I would just entitle Judge, not. Because these are all judges of Israel, for the most part, leading up to Samuel and David. Samuel being the last of the judges. But Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel... We're all judges. Samuel was also a prophet, so he was kind of a crossover to the time of the prophets. And then, of course, David the king. But you've got to realize, if you've ever read or if you've never read the book of Judges, if you'd like a roller coaster ride of the bizarre, read Judges. It's, it's incredible. So many of the great judges of, of Israel had their great behavioral issues. Gideon. Gideon, who destroyed idols and defeated the Midianites. Gideon. But he debated the angel of the Lord continually throughout his story and kept asking for confirmation over and over and over. God said, I'm going to do it. Well, Lord, I believe you, but I I need a little proof. So I'm going to put out a fleece here and just make dew appear on the fleece. God does it. Gideon says, okay, that's cool. But I'm going to flip the fleece over, and what I'd really like you to do is now make dew appear everywhere else and not on the fleece. God does it all through the story. It's this continual back and forth conversation. God saying, Gideon, go do this. And Gideon saying, God, prove it to me before I do it. And he's listed as a man of faith. Then you've got Barak, who led a nation into... No, no, Barak... The other Barak, who led the Israelites into awesome victory over the Canaanites, but he would not go to battle unless the judge Deborah went with him. (laughs) Hiding behind her skirts, as it were. I mean, Barak, go fight the battle, man. Don't be a wimp. Well, I want to go with Deborah goes. Man of great faith. He's listed there. You've got Samson. Samson who was a superman. Now, aside from being a throwback to 1980s hairbands, Samson caved in to the wiles of that femme fatale, Delilah. David had his Bathsheba. Samuel, even Samuel, the great prophet of Israel, had trouble recognizing the value of internal character over external appearance. We see it with Saul. Samuel thought Saul was a, the great man to be king because of his external appearance. 
Then when he was sent to anoint David, he goes through every single one of Jesse's sons thinking it's got to be one of these guys because they looked the part until God says, no, 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 this little shepherd kid, he's the one. And God had to tell Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel had to learn this. So all of these people, they all reveal something, I think, wonderful to us. When I read through the list of names, and that is that even a weak faith is greater than a strong flesh. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Just a little bit of faith. Just trust me in the moment. And that's why each one of these men are listed here because every single one of them trusted God in the moment. They trusted God when it counted. They were willing to say, okay, I don't understand, I don't get it, but I trust you and I will do as you say. But there's another story here among these guys that just leaves us saying, what? And it's the story of Jephthah. Turn back to the book of Judges now, chapter 11. Judges 11. Verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. Uh Uh-oh. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. And they said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. Tob in Hebrew means good, so at least he got to go live in a good land. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. It came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went out to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, come be our chief so that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Verse 9. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Okay, so that's good. He's been called back. He's having a chance now to show his value and his worth. This child of a prostitute, this booted out, no good, no account guy, now has an opportunity to prove himself, to prove his worth in Israel. Note this, first of all, that he's kicked out, but clearly he never lost faith in God. That says something. The church boots you out. A fellowship turns their back on you. Someone in a church hurts you. Do you find yourself tempted just to leave church altogether and walk away? Some even find themselves desiring to just leave the Lord. Jephthah didn't. Even being kicked out, he continued to trust in Jesus. He never lost 
his faith. Now, verses 12 through 28 are all basically Jephthah playing a diplomatic route, but the diplomacy fails because, well, it's hard to appease the enemy of God. By the way, don't, don't try to do that. It's totally a side note. Don't think that you can appease the enemy, that you can placate Satan, that you can give in just a little bit to sin, and that it'll be okay if you just, just give him an inch. If you give him an inch, he'll take a life. Because the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus says, I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So he tries to do this diplomacy route, doesn't work, and then in verse 29 we pick up the story. Note this, now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. That's huge. You need to account for that in the rest of this story. The Spirit was with this guy. This is rare in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Spirit will come upon different ones from time to time. But this is entirely unique. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, And then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon. No doubt Jephthah had a dog like Reggie and thought that perhaps <laughs> this little animal would come running out the door and sacrifice offered. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, verse 32, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Verse 33, he struck them with a very great slaughter from Eroer to the entrance of Manith, 20 cities as far as Abel Kiramim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. Oh, Jephthah! When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. And she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes. He said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I can, I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. And so she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And if I was writing Hebrews 11, I would say, faith like that of the daughter of Jephthah. But Jephthah is the one whose picture hangs in the great hall of faith. She said to her father, verse 37, let this thing be done for me. Let me go alone for two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. And then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. How do we deal with this? Many Bible students chalk this one up as a picture in the Bible of a rash and reckless vow. Be careful. Don't go out there and say, you know, I swear to God I will do this. Be careful. 
Because the vow may be rash. You may not be able to follow through. And God takes our vows seriously. We can throw them out here and there and break promises right and left. We don't think twice about it, but God does. And He remembers. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Jesus would repeat this and put a finer point on it, saying, Hey, you've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows. Matthew 5.33 But you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. In fact, he says in verse 37, Let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Anything beyond these, in other words, is going to get you into trouble. Be careful the commitments that you make. But a poor example of a rash vow, that is not why Jephthah's story is told, either in Judges or brought up again in Hebrews 11. The Hebrew pastor upholds this man, this story, vow and all, as an example of faith. Which makes it even more difficult to deal with. Again, his portrait is there in the great hall. We come walking through. We have seen these amazing people, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. We've seen Rahab and understand and accept her story as a woman changed. We've seen Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel. We've been looking at these pictures, but we stand here before the portrait of Jephthah and we say, What? Someone's got to get the curator in here because this picture does not belong. How can you call this guy a a man of faith when we know this one thing for certain? God abhorred human sacrifice. God was never okay with human sacrifice. you got to factor that into the story as well. We can't just read on to the next chapter and go, oh, I guess he sacrificed his daughter. No, God would not allow such a thing. Not from his people. Well, so what do you do? Deuteronomy 12.31 You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. You shall not do this. Stated the clear and unequivocal law of Moses and Jephthah's under that law. And then Jephthah is upheld as a man of faith. So putting it all together, we have to believe, we have to understand something else is going on here. Unlike the pagan gods who demanded people prove their devotion by sacrificing their own children, our God proved His love and devotion by sacrificing His own Son. He didn't come asking us to make the sacrifice. He made it. Romans 5 eight says God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And by the way, that doesn't make the sacrifice of Jesus any less abhorrent to the Lord. He still hates human sacrifice. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, through trust. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God absolutely abhorred the sacrifice of Jesus. And yet it was through that curse, through that sin taken on His Son that we become saved. Back to Jephthah. What do we do with him? Did he sacrifice his daughter? How does the story play out? Josephus and the ancient rabbis believe that he did offer his daughter as a human sacrifice. They didn't see any other way to read it. They reason it by use of the word that you see translated uh, back in in, uh, Judges. Judges, um, where were we? Back in Judges chapter 11, you see the word in verse 31. I'll just read it to you if you've already gone back to Hebrews. It shall be the Lord's, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So his commitment was to offer up an olah. Olah in the Hebrew. Olah is the word, every time you see it translated, every time you see the phrase burnt offerings in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's the word Olah. So we see it in action and in play in other places, this word applied to burnt offerings. So they say, since it's used for burnt offerings throughout the Hebrews, and since Jephthah lived in a pagan world, and at a time, by the way, where Judges 17.6 says, in those days there was no king in Israel, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. They say, it was a rash vow. He followed through with it. He offered up his daughter. And if you read Judges, as I suggested that you do, you will find some pretty horrific things happened in those days. Horrible things in the days of the Judges. And honestly, Josephus and the old rabbis had a strong case. What do you think, Rick? Well, it doesn't really matter what I think. I'll tell you what I think. Because, of course, that's what I do. (laughs) I believe Jephthah kept his vow. But not as it may seem. Not exactly as we might think. If we're back in, and I can't have to keep going back and forth. If we're in Judges 11.31, again, that word is olah. It does mean burnt offering. But literally, the literal translation of the Hebrew word olah is to go up or to ascend. Why? Why is that a burnt offering? Because you would go up the steps to the altar. And they equated going up the steps to the altar as the burnt offering. Why else would you go up the steps? Because you're going up to make a burnt offering. But the word olah is connected to the word, you heard it, aliyah, that the Jewish people today make aliyah. That is, they go up to the land. So olah also means to ascend, to go up to, to offer the whole burnt offering to God. But it's in its simple sense, I promise to go up the steps of the offering. Listen again now to the end of the story, to a couple of caveats here in Judges 11.37. His daughter said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me go alone for two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Well, what's that got to do with it? Verse 38. 
And he said, go. So we sent her away for two months. And she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of, again, her virginity. So that's repeated. Then in verse 39, at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Why the focus on her virginity? What's the point here? I think she was offered up to the Lord, remaining a virgin the rest of her life. I think she was unable to marry, unable to produce an heir or an offspring for her father, which for a man of valor like Jephthah would be a real hit. In fact, it would be a great sacrifice. It would be the end of any hope of a family line for him. It would be heartbreaking. And furthermore, in verse 39, it continues at the end of two months. He he did the servant. It became a custom in Israel, note this, that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. It became a custom. They would go commemorate. What does that mean? The word is Tanah in the Hebrew, and it's also translated lament, recount, or talk with. That it became a custom that the daughters of Israel would go talk with the daughter of Jephthah for four days every year. I can't be certain, and the only way we will be certain of the end of the story and what really happened is when we see Jephthah in heaven and his daughter. What really happened here? And I imagine she'll say something like, you have no idea. (laughs) But I'll tell you, at the end of this story, I wonder, might it be that the women of Israel customarily went up to talk with, console, and comfort Jephthah's daughter who was secluded and cloistered the rest of her life? for the keeping of the vow. I will offer up to you. I will sacrifice to you. I think about Hannah, who offered her son Samuel, crying out to him because Hannah could not, she was barren and was not able to have a child, and and prayed, God, if you give me a child, I will give him to you. I will technically offer him to you. And she did. And Samuel went to live at the tabernacle with Eli. Spent the rest of his life there. She gave him back to the Lord. And I think, again, this is totally my opinion. And by the way, there is an alternate option that's offered to sacrifice. Offered by God. As if anticipating that life in a pagan world where where people did in fact offer their children as burnt offerings, that God would say, I want you to be different. And in Leviticus 27 verse 1, he says the following. Speak to the sons of Israel, the Lord said to Moses, and say to them, when a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. If your valuation is of the male from 20 years even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. So here's my opinion And that is that the perpetual virginity of Jephthah's daughter would be a whole offering that could fulfill his vow along with a payment of the valuation of 30 shekels of silver. But my opinion doesn't matter. What matters is trusting a God whose innocent son was betrayed for 30 shekels of silver and whose sacrifice was completed on the cross, the whole burnt offering, if you will, the complete Olah as Jesus went up to Calvary and was sacrificed for us. Rahav and Jephthah. 
harlots and judges, messy people in a messed up world. A world in which we live, which seems to be getting messier by the day. My friends, they are all listed here as an invitation to trust. To be washed clean of the mess that gets on us, whether we've received it openly or it's just splashed on us in this world, it is a mess. But our Messiah has come and trust in me. Be cleansed by faith. Again, not a blind faith in the universe or in fate or in luck or in some generic higher power. That's not faith. Or even a tragically misplaced faith in humanity or the self. No, again, it is trust in Jesus Christ that changes us. It is faith in Him that ultimately gives us our complete valuation. Our value in the Lord. And by the way, notice how these messy people are described in Hebrews 11.38. Of whom the world was not worthy. Where do you derive your sense of value? Your sense of worth? What we learn from here, or what we learn about here, is that our value comes from, not from within, but from from, from Him. Our value comes from Him. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Trust in Him and He makes us eternally valuable. 1 John 5.4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who's the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do believe in You. And we trust you. We're here this morning to again declare this truth. And to state openly that trust in you, Lord Jesus, is what it's all about. Trust in you, Lord Jesus, is why we're here. And we do trust you. Lord, this is a messed up world. And we look around us and we see the pain and we see the agony and we see the the death and the destruction We see the work of the enemy that just seems to be expanding at an incredible rate. And yet we are here this morning able to sing praises to you and to once again recenter our trust in Jesus Christ. And that we do. I pray this morning, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts. That if there's anyone here who needs to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, I'll make that choice today. I pray, Lord Jesus, that You will increase our trust and our faith in You. And remind us again, as with all these that we've considered this morning, that our value does not come from ourselves or our behavior. It comes from trusting You. And we do, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.